Welcome to BPR Radio's new series on media ownership and polarization. In each episode of this series, we aim to probe the polarizing effects of media by talking with a wide array of academics and researchers. We've decided to start the series with a more historical lens. In this first episode, we spoke with Dr. David Kurtzer, Professor of Anthropology and Italian Studies at Brown, about the influence of Italian media on the dramatic rise of Mussolini in the 1920s. We also discussed the similarities and differences between Trump's and Mussolini's relationship with journalists and compared how corporate ownership influenced media bias in fascist Italy. You know, Italians or Germans, and then maybe what the U.S. or the Allies did to re-educate them oh. after the war. Oh, well, that probably know less about that. I mean, that's uh-huh. a whole other thing. Fascism and media I could tell you about, but... Um, Post-war is maybe uh, more di- diffuse, and but anyway, yeah, we could talk about it. the. <clears throat> of course, are you recording? Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing to note is Mussolini's background was as a journalist. Uh huh. He was and a left-wing journalist. Oh really? So he had become by uh, right before the First World War, the director or the editor of the. A national newspaper of the Italian Socialist Party, and which is called Lavanti, Avanti, and he uh, was part of the left wing of the Socialist Party, the kind of radical, most radical socialists, mm-hmm. and he um, broke with the Socialist Party when he uh, suggested intervening. He wrote an editorial, so it was actually through the media. He wrote an editorial um, suggesting that they. Uh, intervene in World War One, which Italy ultimately did, mm-hmm. um, and so he was kicked out of the Socialist Party. He was fired from his position as editor of the Socialist National Newspaper, which was based in Milan. Mm. And the first thing he did to try to start his own political movement was to start his own newspaper, which was called The People of Italy, Il Popolo d'Italia. Right. And so it was through the media, you could say, that he launched his career, including launched the fascist movement. So the fascist movement began right after the war in 1919, um, and it uh, organized in part around this newspaper that he had created. Then when he, once he comes to power in 1922, the uh, first years, first of all, this is before, not only obviously before television, but also before radio. Radio only begins to come in the late 1920s, Uh which does become an important story under fascism. But at the beginning of fascism, it basically was only print in terms of media. We're talking right. print media. And so there was really a, a battle, political battle through newspapers. Each political party essentially had its own newspaper. And, uh, for example, as I mentioned, the socialists had their party, their newspaper, the fascists had their paper. Um, but So once he, uh, one thing that's often not understood is he, he came to power in a more or less democratic or parliamentary way. That is, the king uh, asked him to form a government and he became prime minister, but there were still multiple parties at that time. In parliament, for example, um, there were only 35 fascists out of you know hundreds of members of parliament. Mm. Uh, so he had to form a coalition and there were the different parties. Uh, many of the parties had their own newspapers and so forth, so there was still freedom in the press. It was only... Um, a couple of years later, actually, beginning of 1925, that's the date we usually give for his proclaiming the dictatorship. So although he, mm-hmm. in a way, came to power in 1922, the dictatorship only begins in 1925. Mm-hmm. There's some interest there, too, the fact that um, 
it wasn't through military action or coup that he came to mm -hmm. power. It was through uh, more or less normal democratic process, albeit they were using violence for intimidation. Mm -hmm. um, so what's it mean to have a dictatorship? Well, it means, of course, shutting down uh, the other press, right. opposition press. And so during the years of fascism, which would last essentially till 1943 when he's overthrown in the middle of the war as they're losing the war. Mm -hmm. um, there's, on the one hand, are the, the newspaper of Mussolini's family. Once he became prime minister, his brother became the director of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it still was an important paper, the kind of official voice of fascism. Uh, but all the uh, newspapers that continued to be printed were subjected to censorship. So they couldn't print anything critical of the regime. Right. Um, and in fact, there was an office, a uh, whole ministry dedicated to the media, which um, provided, not only was involved in censorship, but pro kind of uh, provided suggested stories for the newspapers to publish. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, at one point, published stories that uh, Franklin Roosevelt was actually a Jew, <laughs> this kind mm -hmm. of thing. So during, well, the other thing that happens during fascism is radio does come in, and radio comes in, when radio comes in, uh, around late 20s, beginning of the 30s, the uh, fascist regime basically sets up its own control of it. There's basically one radio channel. Mm -hmm. um, the Vatican, which is a bit of a separate issue, but the Vatican will also set up their own uh, radio. And the only non-censored newspaper in Italy throughout fascism was the Vatican newspaper, Lazaretto mm -hmm. uh, Romano, which was always a bit of an irritant for Mussolini since he didn't completely control it. So instead, he tried to intimidate the Pope into not publishing anything that he didn't like. Mm -hmm. um, but the uh, radio became very important for Mussolini. So he, when he would give uh, his addresses, for example, outside of his headquarters in the middle of Rome, there's a big piazza outside the building. Uh, Piazza Venezia, where he'd assemble thousands of people, but they would be broadcast live on radio. And so in each town throughout the country, the local fascist officials would set up a radio and some kind of you know PA system to broadcast mm -hmm. uh, his speeches. And they would uh, it'd be a combination of people being kind of uh, you know enthusiastic fascists who wanted to be there, but a lot of people kind of dragooned into uh, coming there. Uh, so radio became early on, you know, after print media, the, the first kind of medium that became very important for for politics in general, and for, in this case, for Mussolini and the Italian fascist movement mm -hmm. in particular. Uh, and that would uh, that would last until the the end of fascism in Italy. Mm -hmm. And so, could you, so you, uh, you mentioned that Mussolini was initially like uh, socialist. He was on the left, so. Could you tell me a bit, was it his firing that kind of led to him switching to the right? Or how did that change over time? Well, there was a, a period, you know, when the fascist movement it wasn't really clear that it was a right-wing movement, at least as we now think of right-wing versus left-wing. And number of the, you know, 1919, right after they formed, uh, if you look at the first candidates they put up for office, they included people like uh, Arturo Toscanini, mm -hmm. the famous you know, uh, conductor, who was a man of the left, saw himself as a man of the left. But at the time, uh, the, the party stood for uh, kind of anti-capitalism, mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, it was anti-clerical, anti-power kind of, of the, the clergy and the church um, for justice for the returning veterans. You know, there, of course, hundreds of thousands of Italians had been in the war. They came back, and there weren't jobs for them. And um, there was a notion of the war profiteers uh, who were hoarding the nation's wealth. So you know, this was kind of a whole matrix of ideas there that and it would only be over a certain time, not a long period of time, but still that the uh, movement would become clearly of the right. And the, those who had been on the left either went along with that movement um, or you know, got out. Mm-hmm. Like Toscanini very early realized <clears throat> this was not going in a place he wanted to be going. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, left the country. Right. Um, yeah, so sometimes left and right aren't the most... And, you know, I look at the relations between the Vatican, among other things, the Vatican and the fascist regime. And from the Vatican's point of view, there were kind of two souls of fascism, the good, or two kinds of fascists, the, the good fascists and the bad fascists. Mm-hmm. And the uh, bad fascists, they regarded as left-wing because they were anti-clerical. Oh, right. Uh, uh-huh. And... Um, part of this kind of earlier tradition. And the good fascists were the conservatives, the one who, who wanted to work together with the church and the monarchy and the you know, industrialists and so forth mm-hmm. uh, in a kind of conservative uh, society. So um, it's kind of interesting for today when you look at <clears throat> the religious uh, leaders who back some of the you know, right-wing movements uh, in the U.S. and uh, yeah. how... How these kind of compromises get to be made, mm-hmm. and it's also interesting. So you know, it, the modern day kind of embodiment of you know fascism, I guess, in the U.S. Someone like Trump, mm-hmm. um, who is known for like uh, discrediting the media mm-hmm. and you know, ex- you know, calling everything misinformation and you know, fake news, um, and it's interesting that Mussolini has a background in journalism yeah. because. You know, in that case, I'm assuming that he wouldn't need to discredit the media as much. Like, he would be able to use the media to his advantage much more, right? Yeah, of course, it's advantage when you can censor, yeah. <laughs> censor the media, which he did. Uh, so, the, so in his case, when you're talking about fake news, he'd be referring to news coming from abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, he's trying to keep that news out of the country. Um, so, uh, the, you know, for example, in... Once the war begins, and Italy joins the war in 1940 on the side of Nazi Germany, uh, they almost immediately have uh, terrible reverses of the Italian military that do very poorly, mm. uh, which is all being reported in the rest of the world. But in Italy, they're not learning about it from the right. press, which just talks about them going from one victory to the next victory. Mm-hmm. Um, so this uh, becomes very important. And so insofar as people... So one of the things that uh, does get cracked down on is anyone who tries to listen to you know BBC you know, radio in right. Italy during the war or earlier on too but especially during the war uh, you know they, they can end up in jail so mm-hmm. controlling the, the media and then w- once you have radio it becomes more of a battle in a way because it's kind of easier to keep out foreign newspapers perhaps than you know radio waves from right. coming into your country uh-huh. and how would you compare um sort of, uh, what was I going to say? Um, how would you compare, like, uh, the way that um, modern media, you know, 
especially in the U.S., you know, Fox News, MSNBC, the way these networks kind of treat, um, I don't know how much you know about this, but progressive, uh, the progressive movement mm-hmm. and sort of misrepresenting the progressive movement. How would you compare that kind of bias with uh, the kind of censorship that um, was, was around during Mussolini's time? Well, I mean, maybe that's some of the most egregious examples of uh, of this are uh, certainly on the right. But I mean, from my point of view as an anthropologist, it's you know everybody is misrepresenting your reality. We're creating right. reality. There's no um, you know direct relationship between reality out there and what people how they construct what's going on in the world. So mm-hmm. whether it's left wing or right wing uh, media, they're uh, constructing reality for their listeners. Um, or their readers, and um, so yeah, it's, it's um, well. The other thing to keep in mind is Mussolini appreciated the role of emotion in politics, and I think this has lessons for the, the media that um, this notion that people are just influenced by kind of rational considerations, um, Mussolini realized is not in fact what humans are like, mm-hmm. um, and. So people um, are influenced by how how they feel, how they're made to feel. So they like to be part of a larger group, to identify with a larger group. So a lot of the media is around creating a sense of us versus them, whether it's on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I think there are, you know, this is a lesson. The Muslim is a pretty smart operator. I mean, he was an opportunist and immoral and amoral and so forth, but he wasn't stupid. And in fact, one of the things uh, that is about media that's worth thinking is makes him very different than Trump, for example, with whom he's sometimes compared, but mm. I think, unfortunately, it doesn't make a lot <laughs> of sense. Because um, I don't think it's fair to Mussolini uh, to <laughs> declare him to Trump to uh, uh-huh. compare. I mean, Mussolini read newspapers in four languages every morning uh, to see what the world press was saying. Um, not so much during the war, but you know most of his the, his years, uh, twenty years that he was in power. Um, so he was very sensitive to the world press, and in fact, he spent a lot of his time in the twenties uh, and thirties speaking with foreign um, journalists. Uh, I mean, incredible number, and for the most part, he got adulatory coverage. So he knew kind of how to charm foreign journalists from mm. you know democratic countries. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not just talking about you know Nazi Germany, or, but uh, you know Britain and France and U.S. and so on. So um, Mussolini was someone who very much appreciated the power of the press, power of the media of the day, and um, spent a lot of his time figuring out how to craft his his image in kind of positive way for the media. Mm-hmm. And when he was actually, can you talk to me a bit more about how he was actually elected? Like what made him very popular? Um, well, he why did, why did people sort of unite right. around him? Yeah, he came to power. Um, so you have to realize that after this is right after the war, um, and there was uh, in Italy at the time. On the one hand, you had these you know, hundreds of thousands of returning veterans, many of whom couldn't find jobs, um, and the. Um, and the socialist movement. There had just been the Russian Revolution. This is the other thing to keep in mind if mm-hmm. you're trying to understand what happened in, in Italy and, and 
Germany and other parts of Europe um, in the post-war period is that it's not just the post-World War. It's that part of the, what happened in World War I was uh, 1917 Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. So this, and uh, in Italy, you had, in Germany, you had a strong socialist and communist uh, parties that were basically calling for revolution and um, denouncing the inefficiencies and corruption of the political system, the democratic political system. So I mean, this is the context in which his kind of anti-communism and to some extent anti-capitalism uh, proved attractive to, to a lot of people. And um, uh, you know, that said, he initially, uh, as I mentioned, there were only 35 members of parliament elected in 1921. He, he first ran for parliament. There were elections in 1919, which he lost. And mm-hmm. I think only uh, one or two fascists were actually elected then. Mm-hmm. There were new national elections for parliament in 1921, and only 35 fascists there were many, many more, say, socialists uh, elected or members of the Catholic Popular Party elected. Uh, so when he, um, but they used, he used violence. There was a famous march on Rome where he organized his followers to uh, end up having you know, thousands of them kind of lightly armed, basically, uh, march toward Rome. And there was a question of whether the king would call out uh, the army, which could have easily put it down, but for various reasons he didn't. And instead, it was then that he asked Mussolini to become the new prime minister. Mm. And there seemed to be political paralysis. And uh, so, was that was that decision like completely exogenous to the rest of the pro- like political process? Well, like so it wasn't appointed? based on his popularity in the sense of that he had majority popularity at the time. And in fact, in uh, two years later, in 1924, the a leader of the kind of reform socialist party he was one of his major critics was assassinated in uh, in uh. Rome and this led to a crisis it wasn't yet the dictatorship um, and we know from a tapped phone call of his to his lover at the time that he thought that this was the end that he couldn't survive it the major uh, establishment press for example turned against him and uh, he uh, he only survived, and the other fascist leaders came around. He seemed depressed, and they were trying to buck <laughs> him up, and were worried what would happen to them all. Um, but for him, for the king to appoint somebody else, it was going to require the support of the large Catholic party. But the at that time, this was a subject of a book of mine called "The Pope and Mussolini." Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pope uh, said no good Catholic could support a coalition with the socialists. And so the king had nobody else basically to appoint um, right. to who could get a majority in parliament. And this, along with some other factors, led to Mussolini proclaiming his dictatorship uh, in the beginning of 1925. Mm. Uh, so, so, yeah, Mussolini then, so it wasn't that he came to power because he had a majority of Italians behind him. So he had to build consensus, and this is what he would be doing over the next years, partly, of course, through the control of the media. Mm-hmm. And you were mentioning that there was sort of an establishment press originally, yeah. and then his his uh, journal, um, his newspaper came in and became the major newspaper. I'm assuming. So, what was that transition like? Yeah, well, he didn't. So he didn't uh, eliminate other press as long as it wasn't associated with a particular party, because mm-hmm. um, as I mentioned, the various parties had their own papers. But uh, you take a 
like the biggest selling paper in Italy and still today is Corriere della Sera, uh, which is a paper published in Milan that had gone back uh, many decades before. And there was similarly an uh, establishment uh, newspaper based in Turin, these two major industrial cities in the north of Italy. Uh, there was another such paper in, in Rome. They all continued. None of them were closed down. Mm -hmm. But they were censored, and over time, uh, the um, regime ensured that the directors or editors were people sympathetic to the regime. Right. But what's you know, kind of remarkable to me is, um, you know, if you read, let's say, Corriere della Sera, which, as I say, still today is the major uh, newspaper in Italy, it's all this pro-fascist stuff, and once they begin, for example, the anti-Semitic campaign in 1938, it's filled with this vile, most vile kind of anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And yet, the day you know, the day after Mussolini is overthrown, they change director, and you know, it's all of a sudden singing a totally different tune, and right. with absolutely no self-consciousness <laughs> about you know that they had any responsibility for uh -huh. anything that happened in the past. Mm. Um, okay, and. Uh, um, oh yeah. So you were you were mentioning that sort of fascist leaders basically picked, you know, who was in charge of the of the press and like mm -hmm. who, who had the authority to publish different things because they had to censor everything. Uh, but nowadays it's sort of a reverse effect almost because you know you have corporations like Facebook and Amazon, you know, spending millions of dollars on lobbying mm -hmm. and essentially sort of electing the representatives that they want in office. So what do you think of that reversal and of maybe the fact that it's... What, what, how would you say that maybe more so corporate, the corporate kind of fascism that we see today, maybe not so much as fascism, but the corporate influence that we see today, how does that compare to the fascism that you had back in Italy in the 30s? Well, I mean, there's a long, when we talk about the major newspapers in Italy, for example, um, they had largely been supported by you know, large financial interests mm. uh, of the big industrialists, for example, and uh, they would continue to be. So this actually didn't change with fascism. Right. And um, so the, and in the post-war period, I mean, you think of Berlusconi, who... Um, sometimes used to get compared to Mussolini in the pre-Trump days. Uh, Berlusconi owned you know, half the, the uh, TV stations in Italy, uh, the owned most of the private TV stations. And then when he became prime minister, he would control their th three main um, TV stations of the, uh, that are publicly owned, uh, the RAI, RAI. Mm -hmm. And as prime minister, he basically controlled the appointments to, you know, their oversight as well, so it was kind of controlling a huge amount of all the uh, media in, yeah. in Italy at the time. Uh, and of course, he was a big, uh, he was the most wealthy person in Italy as well, so mm -hmm. it kind of comes from that uh, major capitalist background, could say. So, you know, none of this, I think, is new in terms of the U.S. Um, yeah, I mean, these are, are certainly, uh, certainly true, but from I mean, if you look at the New York Times, the Washington Post, I mean, papers that are, um, you know, more left than right, certainly, in their mm -hmm. editorial policies and in their, not just that, their actual news stories, um, the way they construct reality, uh, is, um, I mean, they're, of course, I mean, 
who is it who owns the uh, Washington Post and so on. Yeah, so, so it's not that uh, the right versus left are somehow the, the people's papers versus right. papers owned by the wealthy. It's just the nature of uh, industry, of which the media is an industry that they're owned by wealthy people. Buffy, yeah, mm-hmm. that's a fair point. Okay, and then uh, just a last question. Um, could you tell me more about maybe the economic situ- uh, situation in Italy, you know, following the First World War? Um, I'm just trying to see if... Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of factors led to Italians becoming more fascist or becoming more polarized? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so on the one hand, the uh, you know economically there were um, difficulties, but you know there were difficulties everywhere. So you know the question of why fascism fascism began in Italy, not elsewhere. I mean, I think partly it was Italy had a, a strong socialist in, uh, movement, which the communists had, um, would in the immediate post-war period, sort of hive off after the, you know, the Russian Revolution. Uh, the Russian Revolution scared a lot of people, especially, of course, the you know, landowners and, and uh, factory owners, but also mm-hmm. more middle-class kind of people. Um, and, I mean, I think the left overplayed its hand, myself, uh, which is, you know, by basically scaring people that there's going to be a revolution and uh, mm-hmm. proletarian dictatorship and so forth, just like Russia, when in fact they weren't in a position to bring any of that about. And so that would lead to sympathy for a lot of the, the fascist thuggery that took place of, you know, beating up um, you know, socialists and mm-hmm. various other um, union, you know, burning down union halls, that kind of thing. Um, and so, you know, for, for example, the left was carrying out various national strikes, which also uh, scared a lot of the, uh, um, kind of might say moderates, or not to mention conservatives. Uh, so this was certainly, I think, all part of it. There were other issues. I mean, Italy felt, um, well, they felt that their political system was um, at loggerheads, that... Um, Things weren't getting done, and uh, you know, so the notion of a strong leader who could get things done mm-hmm. became a big trope of all this as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, all these you know played a role. Mm-hmm. And uh, why was there a sense that the democracy that was in place before was not working well? Well, it was a time also of transition to mass parties. This is another issue that um, in Italy, as in many of these uh, Western democratic uh, societies, there hadn't been universal suffrage. Of course, it wasn't female suffrage that well, mm. in Italy. This would only come after the Second World War, but um, universal male suffrage in Italy only came about right around the time of World War One. Mm-hmm. So before that, there were various kind of educational or property restrictions, as there had been in many other, most other countries that had electoral systems. Um, so there weren't, there hadn't, before the Socialist Party in Italy was formed in the late 19th century, there weren't really political parties exactly. And, I mean, Mussolini, the fact that the prime minister, once he became prime minister, would go around giving speeches and holding rallies, this was totally unprecedented in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in most parts of Italy, had never seen a prime minister. There was no reason to, other than going to his own hometown that he'd be going around giving speeches in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a time of of transformation of of the system, including you know all classes basically, albeit 
skin only male, which is another issue, but um, so that along with the other dislocations produced by the war, by the, the communists, um, the Russian Revolution and so on, these all led to to instability and um, I mean, so those are some of the reasons there. The mm-hmm. reasons so there was just a lot of I don't know, uncertainty and mm-hmm. fear, and that led to people being more ready to unite behind someone like Mussolini who offered clear direction. Is that, I'm getting a sense of that. Yeah, so. I think, you know, Mussolini obviously appeared, I mean, one of the curious things about Italian history is Italy as a nation state was only formed in, you know, 1860s, basically. Before mm-hmm. then, Italy had been a patchwork of different right. uh, kinds of, uh, some foreign ruled, like in by Austrian Empire and some the Papal States and uh, Savoyard Kingdom and the Kingdom in the South. Um, so there wasn't really a strong sense of a national identity in Italy, mm-hmm. um, certainly by the mass of you know, illiterate peasants and so on. So World War One became something of a nationalizing uh, by, by having you know, universal male conscription. You had all these people who all of a sudden had to come together. And, right. and so that also um, begins a, a process where now Mussolini and the fascists could call uh, on people to identify and be proud of being Italian mm-hmm. and um, see others as kind of enemies of the um, of Italian identity, like the socialists, partly because their internationalism, mm-hmm. um, and partly because the socialists had been against the participation of the war and all these returning veterans, you know, resenting this. At least a mm-hmm. lot of them were. And this is what Mussolini and the fascists, you know, took advantage of. So, you know, this was some of the cauldron of what he was um, preying upon, you could say. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. Thanks for listening to the first episode of this new series. If you like this episode, please be sure to follow the Brown Political Review podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, we'll interview Robert McChesney, professor of communication and 20th century media history at the University of Illinois. See you next time.